What a great uh, part of the Bible we're going to be looking at. I wonder if any of you uh, did ancient history in high school. Anyone did ancient history? Uh, yeah, just a few educated people, it's all right. Um, I didn't do ancient history, so not one of them. But um, in 480 BC or BCE, the mighty Persian Empire sent a massive army, some 300,000 tr- troops, uh, and they sent these troops to invade Greece. Now, the Greek force was only about six to 7,000, so you're looking at 5% um, of what the Persian army was. But then at this place called Thermopylae, the Persian army got stuck. How did they get stuck? Well, because the only way through was through a narrow 15-meter pass, which had the sea on one side and the mountains on the other. So 15 meters, it's roughly the width of this, this hall, all right? So you imagine 300,000 people having to go through a narrow pass only this wide. They were bottlenecked. So it doesn't matter how many people you've got, when you're bottlenecked like that, the Greeks could just defend this narrow pass as long as they needed to. Now, they held that for two days, the the mighty Greeks versus the mighty Persians. But what happened two days later? Well, there happened to be another way through a small mountain path. And this was known to just the shepherds. So this is the Persian army coming through. This is the narrow pass, 15 meters. But there's actually this dotted line that the shepherds know about that goes around uh, and through the mountain and you could come up behind the Greek army and uh, they didn't, the Persians didn't know about this except one Greek shepherd by the name of Ephialtes decided to betray the Greeks. He told the Persians and that's how the Persians came up behind the Greeks and won this battle at Thermopylae. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, when it comes to Joshua chapter 2, in some ways, it could have been like that, right? I mean, here's Israel. They are the conquering uh, nation trying to take their first fortified city on the west side of the Jordan. The first city on the west side they're going to take is Jericho, a very strategic city. And it could have been like this. It could have been an inside job. It could have been a tactical betrayal. This woman in Jericho, Rahab, she could have been the one that betrayed Jericho and led the city to be overtaken by the Israelites because she supplied some sort of information that enabled them to overcome this fortified city. It could have been like that. But as we read, that's not actually what happened at all. In fact, reading Joshua 2 again, from a military tactical point of view, you've got to conclude that nothing, zero, was gained by what happened in Joshua chapter 2. In fact, If you skip all the way to chapter 6 of Joshua, where they actually fight the battle of Jericho, you'll realize that there was actually no battle needed to be fought. Jericho, okay, spoiler alert, is going to be defeated without anything needed, inside job or no. It didn't need it at all. So in some ways, you could argue that Joshua chapter 2 is really the most unnecessary chapter from a military point of view. Yeah? You could... Skip all the way from Joshua 1, if 2 wasn't there at all, go from Joshua 1 to Joshua chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, and it really wouldn't make much of a difference, especially from a military point of view. So here's the question then, why? Why is Joshua chapter 2, this story of Rahab, why is it there at all? And why is there so much detail? Why is Rahab in Joshua Now, the answer to that question, which I want you to keep at the back of your mind, is actually much more important than at first glance. The answer to this question will reveal what is at the very heart 
of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and why it's actually good news for us today here in the 21st century. Why don't we pray and then we'll get into the story. Father, I pray that today on Pentecost Sunday you might do a fresh work of your Holy Spirit, that you might pour him out on us, that in this very story, these words which for some of us might be so familiar, stuff we've learned from Sunday school, you might speak afresh, challenge us, and grow us to love you and love Jesus more. I pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, You'll need to have your outlines or your Bibles open because I'm not going to show up the uh, passages from Joshua. Uh, I'm going to show up other passages, but have it open so you can follow with me. So let's go in the story. Um, So we had last week the introduction to the book, Joshua chapter 1. You can catch up online. But Joshua is the new leader. Moses is dead now. And he is getting the troops ready to cross the Jordan River, which stands between where they are now on the east side to where the cities of the Promised Land are on the west side. Jericho, as I said, is uh, the most strategic and the first city on that west bank of the Jordan. So we read in verse 1. Have a look uh, again in your Bibles or the uh, outline. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, Go over, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. Now, I don't know if you know anything about uh, how they measure earthquakes. They use something called a seismograph, and you've probably seen it at least on TV or whatever, but they notice small changes, right? Really, really minute changes. These are such sensitive instruments that even the little bit of tremors would set it off. So these things warn us of danger. Now, this chapter of Joshua is actually all about danger. It's all about risk. So I want you to have at the back of your mind a sort of biblical seismograph. At different times, we're going to notice little hints and even little hints of danger. I want you to kind of just imagine that needle moving, okay? You get what I mean? So the first thing we get is Joshua, he's sending spies to look over the land. Now, that actually should register some little bits of movement when it comes to the biblical danger seismograph meter. The reason why that should uh, register a little bit of danger is because the last time this happened is significant. The last time, right, the leader of Israel sent spies in into the land, something bad happened. You see what happened in Numbers chapter 13 and 14? We won't look it up, but have a look later on. Um, Moses sends spies in. And they bring back a report about the promised land. And the land is great. The, right? It's flowing with milk and honey. It's all that they dreamed of. But they come back with a report about the inhabitants of the land. Right? The inhabitants are big and strong and the cities are fortified. And, and at hearing the report, the people of God, Israel, they melt in fear. And so they decide, we're not going to go in. We're, we're too scared. They rebel against the Lord. They refuse to go in. And that led to 40 years of wandering in the desert, right? That's the background to to sending spies in that last time. And here Joshua is doing it again. And and if you're reading this for the first time, and all you know was that episode in Numbers, you'd be thinking, oh my goodness, is this going to end up in another disaster? Well, keep going because there's actually more danger uh, coming up. So we keep reading. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, did you notice in the kids' talk, it didn't mention Rahab's occupation because it was the PG version, right? The Bible is not written for uh, for that. It's not PG. 
Um, if alarm bells weren't going off before, they should really be going off now. These spies somehow end up in the house of a Canaanite, right? The inhabitants of this land called Canaanites, a Canaanite prostitute. Now that in itself is a little bit questionable. But on top of that, Israel's poor history should really send alarm bells ringing. Again, in Numbers chapter 25, we won't look it up, but back then, the men of Israel, they deliberately and wantonly sin against the Lord by becoming sexually involved with Canaanite women. And as a result of punishment, God sends them 24,000 of them die in a plague. That's a disaster, right? And here we got these spies, and they somehow end up in the house of a Canaanite prostitute. Now, we don't really know for sure if they were there because, you know, you can gather intelligence better in that kind of setting. We don't know. Or is it for shady personal reasons? We can guess. Lots of books and articles have been written about this. But whatever the case, you see, if you have that biblical seismograph, that danger alert, that needle would be going a little bit crazy at that point. You'd be thinking, danger, danger, danger. Of course, it gets worse. It increases. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, because the king of Jericho is now onto them. All right, it's all building up. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now, how did this guy know that they were at Rahab's? I don't know, maybe she's really good at her business, I don't know. But the fact that he knows means that not only the spies' lives are at danger, but now her life and the life of her entire household, parents, siblings, they were all now in great danger, right? So right now, you're supposed to imagine that needle, that seismograph going really, really crazy. Let's keep reading verse number four. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, that's said to the king of Jericho, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. So she does this misdirection thing, but the key to her words here are the words, I don't know. She says that twice. Now, some of you will be thinking, She lied. Yes, she did. And lying is wrong. But that's really not the focus of the story, so let's not get caught up on that. The focus is really on the risk, isn't it? The focus is on the danger and risk that Rahab took in hiding and then misdirecting these agents from the king. See, in the midst of danger, when that seismograph is going crazy, Rahab does what's right. He protects, she protects the Israelite spies. And then we read on uh, that the agents are sent on this wild chase and the gates of the city are shut and so the spies are safe, they're hidden on top of the roof or maybe the attic space. And we go to the next part. And the next part is the center of this chapter. So we're up to point number C on the outlines. And I especially use the color coding and structured it like that. So you can see it's a bit of a, you know, you probably are familiar with this. I do this quite a lot. There's a sandwich or a double-decker sandwich structure, which means that the C part, the bit in yellow, is actually the center. You see it there? So verses 8 to 11, really, Rahab's words here, this is what the whole chapter is really going to help us focus on. So let's read those verses again. Verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, 
she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. I remember the key words before when she was misdirecting the agents of the king was, I don't know. Now it's flipped. Now she's saying, here's what I do know. And here from the mouth of this Canaanite, pagan, idol worshiper, prostitute, we find out just how much she knows. Her confession, if you look carefully, uses language that comes from God's own mouth that he gives to his own people, Israel. She, an outsider, is talking like an insider. So she, for example, knows God's personal name, the Lord or Yahweh. Verse 11, she knows who he is, that he is God in heaven above and earth below. In a culture of many gods and many idols, to say this is extraordinary. She knows not just who God is, she knows what God has done. She knows what God will do. Verse 10, what he did in bringing his people out of slavery, miraculously drying up the Red Sea. What he already did to the two kings on the east side of the Jordan. And that's what he's now going to do to the kings on the west side of the Jordan. Because she knows that this land that she is in has now been given to Israel by Yahweh, by the Lord. She knows all these things. And then in a great reversal, she also says, I know that the Canaanites, my people, are melting in fear because of it. She says it a couple of times. These are the same words used when Israel, 40 years ago, after the spying happened the first time around, when they heard how strong the inhabitants were and they decided not to go into the land, the words were, they melted in fear. Now it's all reversed. It's the Canaanites whose hearts are now melting in fear. Now, clearly, Rahab is also acting out of fear. I mean, that's, that's why she's doing this, right? But I think we're meant to see that unlike all the other Canaanites that she's speaking on behalf of, the inhabitants of Jericho, she didn't stop at fear, did she? Right? These words, verses 8 to 11, shows that her fear turned into some sort of genuine faith, which is why this confession right at the center of this passage is so remarkable and so central to this story. Well, let's keep going. Danger and protection the second time, right? Now, once the spies leave, what happens? The danger is reversed, isn't it? As is the need for protection. Uh, before they were in danger, she needed to protect them. But now she would soon be in danger and they need to protect her. So let's have a look at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. A couple of key words here. It's the words kindness and faithfulness, all right? Kindness and faithfulness. In Hebrew, they're the words chesed and emet. 
Right? Really significant words. She has shown kindness. The Hebrew word is chesed. And she asks for a sure sign or a sign of faithfulness, emet. In verse 14, in return, they will treat her kindly and faithfully, chesed and emet. Now, I'm going to keep saying those Hebrew words because they're really important words. Those twin words are used in the Old Testament to constantly describe God's relationship with His people. It's often translated as love and faithfulness. It's actually the two things, the two words that describe what binds God to His people. In spite of all their sin and failure, it is hesed, it is emet that keeps Him committed to them in love and faithfulness. And now, you see, it's all applied to her. As if she's now one of God's special chosen people. And then verses 15 to 16, uh, we won't read those verses again, but the spies escape with her help. And then verses 17 to 21, um, they tell her, well, this is how we're going to spare you when the city falls. You're going to have to put out a scarlet cord outside your window as a sign. And then last section, they return to Joshua. They make their report. Verse 24, they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are, there's that term again, melting in fear because of us. Now, this report, of course, is great from a confidence point of view, isn't it? Like, you need that kind of morale boost. But as I said before, it is of no tactical or military advantage at all, right? They didn't really report to Joshua anything that was going to militarily help. It it wasn't like that shepherd who told the Persians how to get behind the enemy lines. It wasn't like that at all. Which is why I say this is, in some ways, the most unnecessary chapter. This whole chapter is just about one thing, one person. It's about a Canaanite prostitute, a nobody. But you see, that's where the beauty is. Because God loves nobodies like her. And the Bible is full of stories just like that. And so, in fact, Rahab's story is a beautiful picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is my final point. Uh, The word gospel means good news, and the gospel is all about God's rescue plan, isn't it? It's about salvation. And Rahab's story, I want to show you in three quick points, foreshadows the gospel by filling out the details of salvation. Firstly, saved from what? Now, when we come to Joshua chapter 6, the actual Jericho uh, city conquest, we will tackle the controversial issue of Israel and what they were supposed to do once they conquered cities like Jericho. They were to completely destroy, and by that literally completely destroy, every single living thing. Men, women, children, even animals, both army and civilians. Now, that is shocking, I know. And we will get to that. Now, the word used for that destruction is in verse 10. Rahab knew that this is what they did to the two kings on the other side of the Jordan, and the words are, they completely destroyed. Now, again, we'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time when we get to chapter 6. But I want to let you know now that this complete destruction policy for Israel is for us, and this is the important bit for today, is for us a picture of what hell will be like. All right? Let's just deal with that for now. That complete destruction 
policy for Israel is for us a picture of what hell will be like. And so let's talk about hell. See, as uncomfortable as it sounds, as offensive as it sounds to our culture, hell is real. A place of eternal judgment and punishment for those who remain unforgiven, who are not right with God. And hell is not opposite or contradictory to a God of love because guess what? Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And the Bible says that hell is actually what we all deserve. And hell is by default where we're all heading. And so hell is something that we should all be rightfully fearful of. But the good news is, of course, hell is what God saves us from through Jesus. And if complete destruction of Jericho is a picture of hell, then what he does for Rahab is a picture of salvation for us, isn't it? So next point, how was Rahab saved from her hell? Well, remember those two Hebrew words, through God's chesed and emet, through God's love and faithfulness. Through that scarlet cord that marked out her house when hell came. And it's supposed to remind us of the Passover. You remember the Passover? Where the blood was painted on the door frames of the Israelite houses to rescue them as God and the destroying angel came and swept through Egypt and killed all of the firstborn. It was that blood that protected them. And so just like the Passover with the scarlet blood, Rahab's scarlet cord is a symbol for the blood of Jesus, the scarlet blood of Jesus. Because who is the one who stands between us and the hell that we deserve? It's God's own Son who bled and died on the cross in our place. See, as terrible as hell is, Jesus went to hell for us so that we would never have to. And those who trust in Jesus have their souls covered by his blood. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Do do you notice now there is a scarlet thread that runs all throughout the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament. And Rahab, of course, also reminds us that this is for anyone who would exercise the same kind of faith as she. Remember, she didn't stop at fear. It drove her to faith. And her faith was risky. It was all in. And it was accompanied by action. And a couple of times she's spoken about in the New Testament. One of them is Hebrews 11. By faith, the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Not everyone will be saved through Jesus, through the gospel. Only those who, like Rahab, will turn faith into action. I wonder if that may be you today. Finally, who gets saved? See, Rahab's unnecessary story is here in Joshua to remind us that God loves to save the completely unnecessary nobody. Nobody's just like the ones Jesus spent so much time loving and befriending. People like Mary Magdalene, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, the Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus, and the list will go on and on and on. And here in a book all about Israel possessing their promised land, 
and their fortunes as a special nation. Well, right at the beginning of this book, God reminds us that He hasn't forgotten the non-Jews, the foreigners, the Gentiles, which of course is also right at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? The gospel that's such good news for Gentile believers like Rahab and all of us. God welcomes those most on the outside and He almost especially goes out of His way to welcome them, to draw them, to care for them, to love them. And I wonder if you're sitting here and that's you especially and God is speaking to you because you know that you're the outsider. Well, today God is saying that He loves you that much. I read the story of a woman called Pazra, born in North India, came from an abusive home. She was orphaned in the most tragic of circumstances. I was getting worse than this. Her dad left her when she was in grade two, as if that's not bad enough. When she was 12, she witnessed her mom get murdered. At 16, she stayed with an uncle whose wife was a Christian, and they invited her to church, and she'd never been to church before. And having never ever prayed before to God, she prayed the only prayer that was on her heart, what she wanted more than anything else in the world. She prayed, God, if you're real, please give me back my family. What happened next? Let me read her words. She says, I knew it was an impossible prayer, but I prayed it anyway. I was really craving love and a family. A few weeks later, there was a couple in church sitting by themselves praying. They didn't know my story. But while they were praying, God said to them, that girl over there, you have to make her your daughter. They were shocked. They came outside and asked people about me. They found out my story and they felt amazed. They called me over to them and told me what God had said. Then they said, we want to make you our daughter. And they really loved me. They discipled me. They had such a big role in my life. And I slowly opened up to the word of God. I realized that God was real and he cared about me. He had bestowed on me a crown of beauty instead of ashes, Isaiah 61. I completely gave my life to Jesus. And everything was different. From then on, I'm going to get the band to come up. We're going to sing in a moment. Pazra's story, Rahab's story, is a lovely picture of the beauty of the gospel. Now, maybe you've never encountered it before, and today it struck you for the first time. Well, don't leave it at that, right? Do something about it. Come and speak to me if you need to. Speak to a friend who brought you. Or maybe your Christian life, you are a follower of Jesus, but maybe your Christian life has been cluttered with so many things that you've lost sight of the core, the beauty of what God has done for you through Jesus. You've lost sight of that. And maybe that's why you've stopped reading and treasuring the Bible, God's Word. Or maybe that's why your prayer life has dried up. Or maybe that's why you've just given up trying to fight sin in your life. Or maybe that's why you've stopped sharing your faith. Or maybe that's why you've begun to get really lazy and complacent about these weekly gatherings with your church family. Or maybe that's why you actually, if you're honest with yourself, you feel like giving up your faith completely. Well, be reminded today 
by Rahab's story, about the beauty of the gospel story. And marvel again. Be grateful again. Be mesmerized again. Fall on your knees again at what God has done for you through His own precious Son, Jesus. Let's pray, and I pray that God would do that in all of us. Lord Jesus, by your blood shed on the cross, you've painted over everyone who would choose to trust and believe in you a scarlet protection that we would never have to go to hell because you endured hell in our place. Lord Jesus, please today pour out your Holy Spirit so those of us who know this might be impacted by it afresh. Those of us who don't know it might be born again. Thank you for your love and faithfulness.